0: Let me say before I read that when we come to these chapters in Genesis, it's well to emphasize again that if you don't believe that these are historical narratives, you don't believe what Jesus Christ said, for he said, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? So putting his stamp upon these chapters in Genesis. And a number of years ago now, I've lost track of how many, I went through a series of messages on the first 11 chapters of Genesis which are critical to our understanding of the Bible. Those who today say that these are just myths and legends, as some evangelicals even have to say, Uh, are undermining the whole message of the rest of the Bible. So that's what I want to preface our reading with as we come to Genesis chapter 3. So let us hear God's word, and we're going to take the time this evening to read the chapter. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. And between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat. The herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden, to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Amen. It is the inspired word of the living God, May the Lord bless the reading of his precious word for his name's sake. Let's take a moment to pray together and ask God's blessing on our meditation this evening. Father in heaven, we ask thee now for the grace that we need to understand thy word. And though the passage is very familiar to so many, yet, Lord, we pray for grace tonight to behold it afresh, to hear the truth that Thou hast conveyed in it. O Lord, give us grace to behold the glory of the promised Redeemer and to cast all our confidence in that work that the promised Redeemer would do. So, Lord, we look unto Thee tonight. We thank Thee for the privilege to be among Thy people and to be in this place. And now we pray that Thou wilt draw our hearts after Thee and cause us to hear and receive Thy truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 17th century, there was a man by the name of John Milton, an Englishman, and Among other things, he served as a civil servant in the Commonwealth of England under Oliver Cromwell after the English Civil War and the execution of King Charles I. Milton wrote an epic poem that became one of the enduring classics of British literature. Its title Is paradise lost? And it opens with these words. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree, whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden, till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. Sing, heavenly muse, that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai didst inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed in the beginning how the heavens and earth rose out of chaos. Say first, for heaven hides nothing from thy view, nor the deep tract of hell. Say first. What cause moved our grandparents in that happy state favored of heaven so highly to fall off from their creator and transgress his will? For one restraint, lords of the world besides, who first seduced them to that foul revolt, the infernal serpent? To read Milton's poem, and it is quite lengthy, with understanding, requires you to have a knowledge of literary devices, a knowledge of scripture, and a knowledge of biblical history, and the willingness to persevere through some of the most complicated sentences ever written in English. John Milton combined his gift for poetry with his love of Holy Scripture to give his and succeeding generations insight into the horrors of which we read in this chapter tonight. That the Garden of Eden was a perfect place in the absolute sense of the word. I always like to point out, there was no death there, there was no thorn there, and we know that perfection from the first two chapters of the Bible, where God said that everything he made was very good. And when he made the man, he placed the man in a garden eastward in Eden. And wherever the man looked, with his store of knowledge far beyond anything anybody knows today, wherever he looked, he saw perfection. The creatures lived in harmony. They ate the herbs and the fruit that God created for their sustenance. They did not eat each other. But Adam realized that he was different from all the creatures for whom he cared. That there was not, as we read in Scripture, an help meet for him to be found. And so the Creator fashioned out of Adam another person, a woman. When we read that God made them male and female... And that again is the very thing to which Jesus Christ referred. We learn that God made the woman and presented her to the man. And so the institution of marriage began at that time. I always like to point it out because marriage began before there was any sin or any lust in the world. And Adam himself, as a prophet of the Lord, emphasized that marriage was to be only between a man and a woman. But the chapter we have read tonight begins with the ominous reference to the serpent being more subtle than any other creature that God made. And the serpent became here the mouthpiece for the devil's lies. And he sought to gain revenge for the devil's exile from heaven. In this chapter that we have read is the foundation of every tragedy that has happened in the world from that day to this. Yes, all the tragedies. Of the war going on in Ukraine. They have their roots in this chapter. In this chapter, the door to death swings open and it swings on the hinges of lust, rebellion, and unbelief. Eve allowed the serpent's temptations to resonate in her mind, and Milton vividly described what happened. So saying, Her rash hand in evil hour, forth reaching to the fruit, she plucked, she eat. Earth felt the wound, and nature from her seat, sighing through all her works, gave signs of woe that all was lost. Back to the thicket slumped the guilty serpent, and well might. For Eve, intent now wholly on her taste, naught else regarded such delight till then as seemed in fruit she never tasted, whether true or fancied so, through expectation high of knowledge. Nor was Godhead from her thought. Greedily she engorged without restraint. And knew not eating death. Forgetting all that Adam taught her, she plunged her soul into ruin. And Adam, and it wasn't until very recently that I had occasion to think upon this truth, Adam, who was standing right by as all this happened, We get the idea that Adam was somewhere off, you know, on other business in the garden, and Eve kind of just wandered into this conversation. But I don't believe we can justify that approach because Adam would have been caring for Eve, his wife, and having the very solemn words of the Creator in his mind. He had to be present. In that evil hour and undeceived, he deliberately and maliciously joined her in the awful deed of rebellion. Some commentators think that he was motivated by some kind of uh, unselfish passion here that uh, if she had to die, he was going to die with her. I don't believe that that was the case at all. Because the Lord said to him, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. Can we appreciate the enormity of what we read in this passage? Can we appreciate all the benefits, all the advantages that Adam and Eve had at their disposal in their sinless state and all that they surrendered in their foolish desire to be like God? And so, off into the woods of the garden they ran in their guilt, And in a ridiculous effort to keep themselves covered, they fashion for themselves aprons of fig leaves. And their puny effort reminds us that ever since, sinners have been about this task, trying to forge pathetic aprons of fig leaves built from their own works. And they are of no avail in the sight of God. Here in this chapter is the devastation of the human race and the world. Here is the depiction of what I call the ruins of paradise. The ruins of paradise. I have an interest in archaeology as someone who has studied history. I've never done any archaeology. You know, I've read about archaeological excavations and I thought well, that would really be something I remember reading years ago about an excavation going on in Virginia and the, the expectation of those doing the dig was that they were going to uncover some 18th century artifacts, but in fact they uncovered artifacts that went back to the 17th century. And I've often thought, you know, it would, be, it would be a thrill to be in on something like that. But then I tempered my thrill by the thought that most of the time archaeology is just tedium. You take a pile of dirt, you sift through it, and maybe there's something in there that bears examination, but most of the time there isn't. And then you go to the next pile of dirt. But when I was a boy, my family spent four years in what was then called West Germany, or the Federal Republic of Germany. That was its proper name. That was courtesy of the U.S. Army in which my father served. We lived in the Rhine River Valley, and we became acquainted with the ruins of various castles that marked hilltops along the course of the river. But they were ruins. The luxury of those edifices that we could hardly imagine was gone. When you understand the ruins of paradise, then you see the reality that everything, as Milton said, was lost. And that salvation, if there was to be salvation, had to be in its entirety of the Lord. How could a rebellion so horrible as that which we find in this passage leave the man in a position from which he could rescue himself? And yet how many people there are who think I will do the best I can and God will have to be satisfied. No, he won't. We find here that only through the intervention of God can there be any deliverance for sinners from the penalty of death. So this chapter, amid all its woe, amid all the ruins, presents a message of hope. It is the message of the coming Redeemer, who will succeed, God promised, in all in which Adam failed. He will come, as we have read, as the seed of the woman. And he will come to do battle with the seed of the serpent. And he will destroy the works of the devil. So there is a way to regain all that Adam lost. And Milton wrote a companion poem, paradise regained. And the way of regaining what Adam lost is through the second Adam, through his sinless life and his sacrificial death. The last Adam, as he's also called. He had the first Adam and the last Adam. That is, after the last Adam, there is no other saviour. This chapter provides then the history of every person. If you want to know why you do the things you do, you don't have it to look any farther than in this chapter. You can see yourself in Adam as he deliberately and wickedly disregarded the voice of God in his soul and ate that forbidden fruit. And there are many people who will say, well, if, if I had been there, you know, things would have been different. No, they would not, because you were there. You were in Adam. It was not an accident. It was not a moment of temporary weakness. It was not a foible or a flaw in his character for which God somehow was responsible. It was the vicious and premeditated refusal to listen any longer to the Creator. And in that moment, Adam turned from conformity to the law of God and deliberately and defiantly transgressed it. Could anything be more horrible? And is it any wonder that so much was lost as a result We read at the end of the chapter of that flaming sword. God drove out the man and his wife as well. He drove them out. That flaming sword was to be a perpetual reminder to Adam and Eve of the furious consequences of their rebellion against God. So in this passage, we find the filth. Of that foul crime. For the Bible tells us every descendant of Adam sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. So for you and for me it is only through your repentance and faith in the seed of the woman that there is any deliverance of your soul from the wrath of God. So I want us in the time remaining this evening to walk through the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and to observe them in four actions that propagated the ruins of paradise. And let us draw encouragement in our walk from the assurance that Christ was going to come to restore the ruins had to regain what the first man lost. The first action, listening to the voice of hell. It didn't take long, and there's a lot of speculation about how long it was, but I don't think it was very long after creation for the voice of Satan to echo in the garden. Because Satan despises Paradise, And he despises perfection. He himself had been in heaven, in the place of perfection. And he lost that perfection through his own rebellion. And he was determined to destroy in the earth what the creator made. And the folly of Eve was in her willingness to listen to what the devil had to say. Because when you listen to the suggestions of the evil one, you're already in trouble. He is subtle. He can make what is evil look good. We find in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's assessment Of the devil, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Verse 14 of the same chapter. No marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. We read in Genesis 3 that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God made. And the idea was that this creature was a beautiful creature, an appealing creature. When we think of serpents today, we don't think of them in that way. But obviously there was an appeal. Notice the process that the serpent employed. He began by challenging the authority of the Creator's Word. Hath God said? I know what what you explained, Eve, but hath God said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? How unfair that is that you cannot eat of every tree of the garden. And every temptation begins with this idea that God has either not prescribe the activity flatly, or that if he has prescribed it, he doesn't have the authority to do it. How could a good God, here's the devil's reasoning, how could a good God keep from his creatures anything that would be for their pleasure, for their increased wisdom? Why he could do no such thing. You must have misunderstood what he said, Eve. And here's the first line of attack always to doubt what God has said. And the amazing thing is that Eve continued the conversation at that point. Instead of just turning away and saying, No, I can't listen to that, she trusted in her reason. She continued to converse with a creature who was not on the same level as she was. And she demonstrated in her conversation that she understood the commandment that the Creator had made and how severe it was. He said they were not to eat of it. But she understood it to mean that they were not to go anywhere near it. They were not to touch it. So she knew what God said. But the serpent then expanded his attack. It went from a challenge of the Creator's authority to a flat denial of what the Creator said. You're not going to die. You're not going to die. That was a lie. He said, in fact, once you eat this fruit, then you'll have the knowledge that God has. You will become God yourself. And the serpent suggested that God already knew that those effects were going to happen. And because of that knowledge, he barred them from eating of the tree. And so he was saying, God doesn't want you to have that knowledge. God was keeping from them something they should have. Here's always the line of the tempter. You deserve to be happy. Isn't that that what the world says so much today? You deserve to be happy. Whatever brings you pleasure, you deserve to have it. You deserve to have something for yourself. So why shouldn't you gamble? Why shouldn't you commit adultery? Why shouldn't you take that item from the store and not pay for it. If the world were fair, you would have such things. There was the voice of hell and Eve listened to it. She felt rising within her the desire. And she ate the fruit. And Adam, as I've suggested, was standing there with her She gave some to him, and he ate it. And then they realized what a bitter harvest was theirs. They knew evil, all right, but they knew it by experience. God knows evil in theory, not by experience. So they had not become God at all. that was what the devil promised. They had become hopelessly depraved and wretched. And how could they cover themselves? And then they heard God's voice. And here's the next action. They listened to the voice of hell, but then running, running from the voice of heaven. They heard God's voice. It's a beautiful image, is it not? They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And for the first time in their lives, they ran. They hid themselves. Here's the result of sin. It's shame. It's fear. And here's the direction of total depravity. What do so many people say today? There are so many people and they're looking for God. Well, they may be looking for something, but they're not looking for God. Adam and Eve wanted to get away from God, to depart as far as possible from God. Listen to what Adam said I heard thy voice and I was afraid. He had never been afraid before. I was afraid. And see where his rebellion brought him then. Because he knew what God said and he knew the judgment that God was going to meet out. So Adam knew he was as good as dead. And he knew he couldn't meet God that way. He knew that he was naked. And then the blame game began. The cardinal sinner, Adam, refused to take responsibility for his action. He blamed Eve. The woman thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. So he blamed the creator for making Eve and presenting Eve to him. If Eve had not been around, Adam was saying, none of this would have happened. And when the Creator turned to the woman, she pointed her finger at the serpent, one of the Lord's creatures. Once again, suggesting this is God's fault. He made this creature, and He made this creature so beautiful. And here is the reason why I listened. And here is the tactic of sinners that they employ. To this day, it is always someone else's fault. And anybody who has raised children can offer many examples of this very truth. Ask a child why that child did a certain thing. Well, my sister or my brother or some other playmate Did such and such. It was someone else's fault. And at the end of the day, it comes back to God, doesn't it? It's God's fault. And that is why sodomites go around saying that they can't help the way they are. It's the way God made them. It's God's fault. Well, God's judgment fell on the serpent. But then we find the mercy and grace of the Creator being shed abroad here. For next, we find God bringing Adam and Eve out of their miserable hiding place and into the arena of God's redemption. We find the third action. They listened to the voice of hell. They ran from the voice of God. But the third action. Resting on the promise of the Redeemer. It wasn't very long when I was in college when I found out the importance of Genesis 3 and verse 15. The so-called proto-evangelum. The first mention of the coming of the Redeemer. There in the ruins of Paradise. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now it is set against the background of the verses that follow it. Verses 16 through 19. And those are verses that deal with the woe and the devastation that will come upon Adam and Eve. But verse 15 is the voice of hope. It was the signal for the beginning of a great war in God's creation. The war that is still going on between that which is good and that which is evil. Between God and Satan. The devil sought to win the allegiance of those who are the crown of God's creation. The man and the woman. But the creator makes the promise here. That the war will end in the victory of the second Adam. And it ended, I tell you, at the cross. And all that has taken place since that time. The ongoing rebellion by the nations is for naught. Because Christ has already secured the triumph. The seed of the woman came. Not the seed of the man, significantly, the seed of the woman. So not any descendant of Adam could come to save the people. It was the seed of the woman who would engage in the warfare with the devil. He had to come. He had to come to suffer. He had to come to have his heel bruised. But in the bruising of his heel, that heel would crush the serpent's head, would crush the life out of him. So that Jesus came, we learn in the New Testament, to destroy the works of the devil. He will come to regain all that was lost. Now can you see Adam and Eve, as they heard these words, and by the Spirit of God they came to believe in them, they knew that they plunged their descendants into sin and misery. But the Creator opened the way out. The Redeemer would come. He would come to win the war and to regain the paradise of God. And he would do it through the sacrifice of his blood. That was the picture in that clothing, for God made clothing for them. They were coats of skin that meant that animals had to die. So here was the first indication that there was a high cost. The creator shed the blood of animals so that sinners could find protection in his sight. So they did not die forever. Now Adam and Eve came to die physically. Took a long time over 900 years, but they came to die. But they, in their lives in this world, came to trust in the hope that God revealed. And that's the fourth action. Living in the hope of salvation. No, they couldn't stay in the Garden of Eden. And... We don't even know whether anybody afterward could even locate the Garden of Eden. And certainly after the great flood engulfed the world, there was no way for anybody ever to find that spot again. They could not have access to the tree of life. In the words of verse 22, The Lord could not even contemplate the horror of these sinners gaining access to the tree of life and living forever. The Lord could not contemplate the horror of it. So they had to go out. He drove them out. So they could always remember what they lost. Can you imagine Adam and Eve as their lives unfolded in this world? they could always remember that perfect world, that paradise. But they could live with the knowledge that the seed of the woman would come. Adam called his wife's name Eve. We read here, she was, he said, the mother of all living. And for those who were doubtful that I would ever get around to making any reference to Mother's Day tonight, well, here it is. She was the mother of all living. She was our first mother, Eve. She set the pattern for all the mothers who would follow because she was a believer in the gospel promise that her seed would come. Adam and Eve could not eat of the tree of life amid the garden, but one day the seed of the woman, one of Eve's descendants, would come. And if you read in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3, you will find the genealogy that traces Eve descent all the way down to Mary the virgin she was the seed of the woman the seed of the woman or she was the one who would bring the seed of the woman into the world and Adam and Eve believed that they believed what God said they believed the gospel promise and so they were able to live not as those in despair over what they had ruined, but as those who could cling to the gospel promise through all the centuries of their lives. Adam was 930 when he died. But as surely as we read that catalog in Genesis 36, so-and-so reigned and he died. So-and-so reigned and he died when Adam died, all the delusions that maybe what God said would not come to pass vanished. When the word spread that Adam died, then everybody knew here was the end of every person in the world. But that is not where our passage ends. It ends in hope. Eve was the mother of all living. And through the turmoil of those chapters that followed, Eve continued to trust in the promise that the seed of the woman would come. In the ruins of paradise, the Creator preached the gospel. And that is what He calls us to do in the ruins that are all around us in these days to continue preaching the gospel and to strengthen our hope in the ultimate victory of our Lord Jesus Christ over all his enemies. Let us bow together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice tonight in thy goodness to us. We thank Thee for the way in which Thou hast opened the Word to us again. We confess, O Lord, that as we hear the words of God, we find ourselves in the midst of dismay, clinging to the hope of the promise of the Gospel. And we thank Thee that now the seed of the woman has come. We thank Thee now that the seed of the woman has prevailed. And we pray for grace to live in the confidence of that victory of our Lord Jesus Christ over all that is opposed to Him. We thank Thee that in these days, with the ruins all around us, we may rejoice in this confidence that Christ has already secured the victory. He has crushed the serpent's head, and there will come a day when he shall appear for final judgment, and when his people shall rejoice in his presence. So Lord, write the word of God upon our hearts tonight, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.